This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of severe war tactics, prostitution, torture, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Tempers are flaring across the U.S. just as new COVID-19 cases. On March 11, 2020, the World Health Organization officially declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Unemployment skyrocketed as businesses emptied and isolated civilians looked to their evening news for hope that wouldn't arrive for months. As of the latest toll, over 4 million people are believed to have died from the virus worldwide. A century prior, it is estimated that 50 million died from the 1918 outbreak of influenza. One fact is clear. While disease remains a major threat, microbiologists and medical innovations have significantly reduced our vulnerability to it. Treating highly transmissible diseases was exactly what Shiro Ishii took on while pursuing his PhD in the mid-1920s. Having survived two major epidemics, Ishii knew well how biology turned on humans. For some time, his goal was to create the vaccines that ended such emergencies. Until it wasn't. By 1927, Japan was emerging as a hostile expansionist state, and Dr. Ishii channeled his bacteriological expertise into a dark new objective. The very science that helped him reduce mass death could serve as a blueprint for the world's most lethal weapons. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. 
Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm looking forward to offering Alistair some medical insight into our first installment of the case of Shiro Ishii, a microbiologist whose passion for biological warfare brought him face-to-face -face with some of the most dangerous microscopic weapons in all of history. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Dr. Shiro Ishii, a Japanese microbiologist who directed Unit 731, a covert war operation that experimented on humans. Between 1931 and 1945, Japan's germ warfare efforts killed an estimated 580,000 people. This week, we'll explore Ishii's rise to authority in Imperial Japan and the events that enabled his disturbing project. Next week, we'll visit the grounds of Unit 731, recounting the horrors that Ishii's prisoners endured and the concertive denial that followed. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. In the 1340s, plague broke out east of the Balkans. While the land was under rule of the Mongols, the Genoese people had been permitted to establish a trading post in the city of Kaffa. The two groups had been living in relative harmony. But when illness struck, each side pointed blame at the other for the emergency. Their fragile truce quickly dissolved. The Mongols attempted to besiege the Genoese, who cleverly took to the seas. As it happened, the Mongols didn't have a navy, so the Genoese escaped, leaving the Mongols in the grips of an unforgiving epidemic. Several years later, the Genoese were back in Kaffa, and based on the study of texts from the time, some scholars have suggested that the surviving Mongols who still blames the Genoese for bringing disease to their people, devised a plot of vengeance. In the hopes of transmitting sickness to their unwelcome neighbors, they allegedly hurled infected corpses over the walls of Kaffa. Although decomposing flesh generally won't spread illness, a fresh corpse carrying the bubonic plague may have diseased the inhabitants of the Genoese city. Someone who's very recently died from a contagious disease like this can still make others sick, and although it's hard to pinpoint an exact time frame, studies indicate bubonic plague may remain transmissible for over 24 hours after death. If the Genoese people physically handled these corpses, they would have been exposed to diseased bodily fluids and could have contracted the plague via open cuts on their hands or arms. They also might have inhaled infected respiratory droplets while interacting with the bodies, as shifting or moving a corpse can cause its lungs to expel trapped air. Additionally, the Genoese may have been bitten by infected fleas carried by the dead. 
Ultimately, we don't know much about illness transmission rates at this point in history, but it's very interesting and surprising that the Mongols may have thought to use diseased corpses as a weapon. As the story goes, the Genoese fled to Italy for good after the attack. But it was too late. The lethal bacteria from the corpses had already spread, and it would soon contribute to the pandemic we now call the Black Death. If the early accounts of plague-ridden bodies being flung over the walls of Kaffa are true, it would mean the Mongols were one of the first recorded peoples in history to employ biological warfare. But they certainly wouldn't be the last. Some 600 years later, Dr. Shiro Ishii would turn to the same foundational principle, weaponizing illness. On June 25, 1892, Shiro Ishii was born the fourth son in a wealthy Japanese family. Early on, he enjoyed the privileges that came from his higher social class in society. Japan had long honored a feudal system, and Ishii's family was the largest landowner in the farming village of Chiyoda Mura. As a result, they reaped the benefits of the lower classes that sowed and harvested their fields. But as if life wasn't easy enough for the boy raised in a stately, servant-maintained villa, Shiro Ishii had something that set him apart from his siblings. His photographic memory allowed him to memorize entire texts in the course of a single night. This talent emerged early in his childhood and won him favor from educators. Perceived as an academic star, he was challenged to succeed and consistently proved his smarts with each passing year. During his adolescence, his intellect was paralleled by his physique as he grew to a height of nearly six feet, making him taller than most everyone he encountered. The natural authority that came with this further benefited from Ishii's booming speaking voice. In April 1916, these assets helped 23-year-old Ishii secure a path reserved for only a small portion of Japan's privileged he applied to the prestigious Kyoto Imperial University and was promptly admitted. His focus was clear from the start. He would study to become a doctor. At the university's medical department, Ishii's professors recognized his sharp mind and effortless confidence. In turn, they assigned him projects that surpassed the scope of those his classmates received. But while Ishii may have been able to win over his teachers with his deliberate charm, he didn't apply the same behavior to fellow students, especially when they had nothing to offer him. This brought resentment from those budding academics who saw Ishii as cold, calculating, and entitled. This self-serving behavior came across in Ishii's schoolwork too. As one of his academic advisors later recalled, Ishii engaged in practices that reflected a general disregard for everyone around him. He often came into the labs in the evenings to conduct research on his own. His work required the use of vials and tubes that other students had washed after their own experiments. 
but after completing his assignments, Ishii left the soiled tools behind without even the slightest effort to clean up after himself. In medical research settings, there are certain practices that are vital to uphold. Because students in these environments regularly deal with potential dangerous germs and chemical substances, they have a responsibility to operate within a set of parameters and rules to ensure safety for themselves, their peers, and the facility. Some of these rules are basic and self-explanatory, like mandatory PPE or personal protective equipment, and not eating in the lab. Keeping a clean workspace is something that's also heavily stressed, and this is because the implications are so vast. For example, students need to thoroughly clean instruments and properly store them after use. Not only is this cleaning necessary for equipment maintenance, it also ensures no dangerous or reactive chemical residues get left behind, which could be unsafe and even deadly for subsequent researchers. Sloppy lab stations also lead to more spilled fluids and fallen objects, which increase the risk of injury in an already hazardous environment. It's important to think of custodian workers here too, who regularly clean laboratory floors and empty trash bins. These employees aren't trained in handling scientific devices or volatile materials, so it's very important to consider their safety when tidying up. For all these reasons, it's extremely critical that medical students understand how to mitigate risk in the lab. It's unclear whether Ishii's conceitedness stemmed from being weighted on throughout his youth or from an emerging arrogance bolstered by his rewarded aptitude. Ishii's egoic sense of importance was likely only furthered by the onset of Spanish influenza, which hit Japan in April 1918 while he was in school. Notably, the city of Kyoto, where Ishii was studying, was one of the hardest-hit regions. As disease swept through the nation, mutated, and wiped out some 385,000 people, Ishii likely became fascinated by the medical emergency. It was something only science could fix. Only a doctor could fix. Perhaps fantasizing about the implications of wielding Japan's first influenza vaccine, Ishii devoted himself fully to his coursework. He also made frequent visits to the school's president, Torosaburo Araki, whose home was close to Ishii's most frequented lab. This surprised Ishii's professors, as such personal interactions between students and high-ranking school officials were unheard of at the time. Shiro Ishii simply wasn't one to cower beneath the rules of conventional society. He had high hopes for his budding friendship with university president Araki, who had connections in high society. He also courted the president's daughter, Kyoko Araki, around this time, though the budding romance would have to wait. In 1920, 28-year-old Ishii graduated from Kyoto Imperial University and enlisted in the Japanese Imperial Army. For five months, he trained as a probation officer in the 3rd Regiment of the Imperial Guard Division. Consistent with his life up until that point, Ishii proved himself easily and struggled little. He may have also caught word that a large number of officers and soldiers who had recently gone to Siberia had come back with influenza and died. 
Though the pandemic had run most of its course by this point, the reminder of its daunting death toll more than likely stuck with Ishii. As he pocketed intel about the spread of the disease, Ishii continued to pursue military expertise, taking it as another point of pride and elitism. On April 9, 1921, his training was complete. He received his commission as Surgeon First Lieutenant with orders to the Imperial Guard Division. This was a special placement because it was closely associated with the head of state. Still, the high-status position wasn't enough for Ishii. A little over a year later, Ishii convinced senior officers that he would be a great asset to medical research and smooth-talked his way to the first army hospital in Tokyo. Sure enough, Ishii proved his value in his hospital rounds, receiving approval and favoritism from many of his jingoistic superiors. This only amplified Ishii's strong, nationalist attitudes, which had formed effortlessly as Ishii repeatedly benefited from Japan's rigid class system. And he seemed to think he deserved every reward, no matter how flamboyant. In his downtime, Ishii blew his sizable fortune on lavish evenings laden with heavy drinking and sex workers. Eventually, one of Ishii's superiors at Kyoto Imperial University caught wind of his habits. Rather than being scrutinized for his immoral behavior, Ishii was rewarded for it. He was promptly called back to the school, deemed too valuable a mind to be wasting his time engaging in senseless recreation. So proving his devotion to medical research, Ishii returned from his four-year stint in the military in 1924 and pursued his PhD at Kyoto Imperial University. It didn't take him long to declare his focus. Reflecting back on Japan's vulnerability to the influenza pandemic that had struck six years prior, Ishii had a hunch he could wield great power if he could codify a course of treatment and prevention. He decided he'd study bacteriology, blood sera, and human pathology. Shiro Ishii didn't know it yet, but this path would eventually lead him to an article about biological weapons that would change his life forever. Up next, Dr. Shiro Ishii stumbles onto the concept of bio-warfare. Hi there, it's Carter from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out the riveting true crime series Solved Murders, there's no better time to tune in. Throughout the month of August, Solved Murders is featuring four celebrations that took a turn for the deadly in a special series we're calling Party Fowls. From a murder in the New York nightclub scene and a house party gone horribly wrong, to a terrifying evening at the Tate residence and a sex party with sinister results, go deeper inside four affairs remembered for all the wrong reasons. And if you like what you hear with Party Fowls and want to uncover more of history's most captivating cases, be sure to follow Solved Murders on Spotify. There you'll find a new episode released every Wednesday. 
Solved Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1924, 32-year-old Dr. Shiro Ishii had already established himself as a medical expert with an interest in Japan's Imperial Army. Narrowing his focus, Ishii returned to Kyoto Imperial University to study viral transmission. That same year, Ishii was sent on a research mission to Japan's Shikoku Island, where a mysterious new disease had broken out. By the time he and his research team got there, it had reached epidemic proportions. Mass hysteria spread. But Ishii was also concerned with a different health crisis. A strain of spinal meningitis was also spreading, largely through contaminated water. Living on Shikoku, Ishii risked catching two deadly diseases. It seems he was able to split his time and focus on the immediate problem of contaminated water. Ishii set out to develop a water filtration device that would aid him and his fellow students, in addition to Shikoku's civilian population. All the while, Ishii and his team worked tirelessly and quickly to determine the source of the rampant mystery illness. Examining a disease outbreak is no small task and can be highly delicate work. There's a level of personal risk involved in studying highly transmissible bacteria and viruses. For an illness to qualify as an outbreak, it needs to exceed normal prevalence for a given location and season. Once this prerequisite has been established, medical professionals need to systematically review all timely and relevant documented cases they can find. These records are collected from healthcare practitioners, hospital facilities, and laboratories where the patient's diagnoses were originally confirmed. Once these medical reports have been extensively analyzed and patient demographic data has been collected, a process known as descriptive epidemiology takes over. This entails a holistic look at all the pertinent data in order to decipher possible disease determinants and distribution characteristics. This will hopefully single out populations most at risk, which can lead to clues about possible disease sources and how they're transmitted. When trying to uncover a disease's epidemiology, or how often and why it presents in given populations, it's very important to work quickly and carefully. Although there's often a competitive incentive for a doctor to leave their mark on epidemiology research papers, the importance of haste shouldn't be tied to personal legacy. The rush should be about minimizing death, suffering, and preserving healthcare resources. Once Ishii and his team discovered the disease came from mosquitoes, they were able to isolate the virus. They termed it Japanese bee encephalitis. Like dengue, yellow fever, and West Nile virus, 
Japanese bee encephalitis is an arbovirus, or a viral infection transmitted to humans from arthropod insects, like mosquitoes and ticks. It's a very dangerous disease that's most often found in rural Asia, and children under 15 make up most documented cases. Symptoms can include acute fever, nausea, disorientation, neck pain and stiffness, muscle spasming, seizures, and coma. Japanese bee encephalitis also leads to potentially lethal brain inflammation, or edema. This swelling is a result of the infection itself and the immune system's defensive cells, which rush toward the brain to attack the virus. This disrupts their functioning, damages, and ultimately destroys them, which can lead to fatal neurologic consequences. When patients develop severe symptoms, like the ones mentioned earlier, Alistair, they have about a 70% chance of survival. Even though treatments for viral infections like this have improved, Japanese bee encephalitis remains a threat and continues to claim lots of lives. While Ishii was there in 1924, 3,500 people in the Shikoku region died from Japanese bee encephalitis. Rather than feeling terrified by the virus that had wiped out a portion of the island's population, Ishii reveled in its impact. With his research in hand, other doctors and scientists could seek a cure or treatment. It was a significant advance in the field. But that wasn't all that came from the Shikoku mission. Ishii's filtration device would soon stand on the cutting edge of military equipment. Prior methods of water purification included the addition of chemicals to disguise unfavorable tastes and kill pathogens. Ishii's system would be capable of straining out bacteria entirely, in part by using a finely poured ceramic filter and mechanically applied pressure. Its designs were sent to the army of Shikoku and then throughout the rest of Japan, as they solved the simple but overwhelming problem of undrinkable water. Once again, prestige was his. Upon returning to Kyoto Imperial University, Ishii enjoyed increased respect. He also rekindled his relationship with the school's president, Torosaburo Araki, and married his daughter, Kyoko Araki. This solidified his connection to the powerful and militant Torosaburo, while further securing his own reputation as a high-standing member of society. Strategically, Ishii devoted the rest of his time at the school to research that advanced his understanding of human illness. He had the chance to apply it in 1927 when 35-year-old Ishii received his PhD and returned to the military. They stationed him at Kyoto Army Medical Hospital. It's possible he chose this assignment as the facility's close proximity to his alma mater made it easy for Ishii to continue postgraduate research. One of his experiments aimed to treat gonorrhea. In the lab, Ishii and his colleague injected patients with malaria blood cells to artificially induce a fever, thereby killing off the sexually transmitted disease. While this method of inducing a fever was employed across the world at the start of the 20th century, it likely hadn't been explored as a cure for venereal disease. 
In the first half of the 20th century, malaria-induced fevers were used to treat neurosyphilis and other brain-impacting conditions. This is known specifically as malarial therapy, a technique pioneered by a Nobel Prize-winning Austrian physician in 1917. The treatment involves spiking the body's temperature to a high fever, which activates an immune response that combats infection. Specifically, the amplified body heat, blood flow, and heart rate from this fever helps these immune cells travel faster throughout the system. This allows them to more easily traverse blood vessel walls and attack invading microorganisms more efficiently. Although it's a therapeutic practice that demonstrated some success, most patients would experience a relapse of their infection within about two years, and a large number died from resulting fever complications, including organ failure, anemia, pulmonary edema, and coma. Thankfully, this kind of intervention was eventually replaced by penicillin, and today we have targeted and effective antibiotics for infectious diseases. Even though injecting malaria blood cells was a primitive solution, Ishii probably did help some patients with his experimentation. Inspired by the practical application of bacteriology, Ishii sought out new experiments far and wide. He wanted a research topic with a bigger implication than curing a venereal disease. His search ended in 1927 when he stumbled upon an article written by Japanese First Lieutenant Harada. It discussed a treaty composed by the League of Nations two years earlier. The agreement banned the use of both chemical and germ weapons, specifically citing the potential for horrors of pandemic proportions. Afraid of what might be unleashed on the world if any nation did not adhere to this ban, 128 countries, including Japan, had signed it. Ishii evaluated how he could use this information to propel Japan as a leading military force. He reasoned that other countries had agreed to the ban with the intention of pioneering biological weapons in secret. With this in mind, Ishii made multiple visits to high-ranking officers he'd met throughout his time in the army. He also reached out to war ministry officials traveling back and forth between Kyoto and Tokyo. Despite Ishii's impassioned proposal, the military leadership at the time didn't indulge him. For one, Japan had already agreed to abide by the League of Nations order. For another, the research required to develop those weapons would require spending they weren't willing to permit. Frustrated at the resistance he faced, Ishii decided that in order to successfully pitch his project, he'd need to prove other nations were violating the global agreement. So, in 1928, 36-year-old Shiro Ishii left on a two-year world tour, headed for the United States, Canada, France, Italy, Germany, Hungary, Belgium, Singapore, Ceylon, Egypt, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Switzerland, Turkey, Poland, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union. Little is known about who funded this journey, but it's suspected he received private support from ultra-nationalist military leaders. Meanwhile, in Japan, politics were unfolding in Ishii's favor. Throughout the 1920s, the aggressively expansionist military had grown increasingly resentful of government officials. In June 1928, 
Marshal Zhang Zuolin, the warlord ruler of Chinese Manchuria, was mysteriously assassinated. Though Japan's Prime Minister, Tanaka Gichi, had not authorized the attack, he failed to hold the assassins responsible. This mistake ultimately forced Gichi to resign and led to the rise of the Guantung Army, who forced their agenda upon Japan's government through a series of indiscreet coup attempts. When Ishii got back from his travels in 1930, the new military government was far more willing to discuss his ideas for emerging war tactics. Ishii told them his world tour had provided proof that Western nations were secretly developing chemical and biological weapons. The veracity of his claims can't be confirmed, but regardless, the assertions advanced Ishii's agenda. Among the high-ranking military officials who heard Ishii's statement loud and clear was Koizumi Chikahiko, a senior military officer in the Japanese army. Having pursued a long-time passion in chemical warfare, Koizumi saw much of himself in Ishii. It's possible that Ishii also saw an opportunity in Koizumi, who was rising through the ranks of the Tokyo Army Medical College. Ishii insisted that Koizumi use his power to establish an immunology department at the school. Koizumi agreed and then appointed 38-year-old Ishii as chair of the school's new division in 1930. As months passed, Koizumi monitored Ishii's developments and became one of his most avid supporters. He met with young doctors, hospital research groups, and top-tier academics to sing the praises of Ishii's work. According to Daniel Barenblatt, author of A Plague Upon Humanity, in 1931, Koizumi granted Ishii substantial funds to initiate a biological warfare program for the army. Conveniently, it was around this time that Shiro Ishii was promoted to Japan's senior army surgeon. Ishii couldn't be more delighted. Just three years ago, he was begging military leaders to even consider the implications of disease as a weapon. Now, he had the means to create his own arsenal. While he lectured to students at the immunology school during the day, by night, he covertly worked to develop lethal bacterias and chemical poisons. The tools he'd once used to help prevent encephalitis in Shikoku were now helping recreate it in a petri dish. Evidently, Ishii worked with his team to culture lethal bacteria for the sake of developing chemical poisons. Although they weren't what he was interested in, there are many good bacteria that help keep people alive and healthy, like probiotics, for example. These bacteria live and grow naturally in the body and help protect intestinal cells from harmful invading pathogens. For his purposes, Dr. Ishii studied pathogenic bacteria, which cause diseases like cholera, tuberculosis, and the encephalitis he was so familiar with. Pathogenic bacteria are dangerous because they release toxins into the body, which are harmful chemicals that damage tissue and make people sick. Luckily, Dr. Ishii didn't have the same technology we have today in relation to gene modification and biotechnology. 
Scientists are currently able to isolate genes from certain bacteria and introduce them to other strains. This is referred to as recombinant technology, and it basically lets experts create new microorganisms with customized characteristics. It's plain to see how this capability would have been catastrophic in Ishii's hands, as he clearly had his mind set on destruction. Even with his extensive access to bacteriological samples, brilliant scientists, and state-of-the-art lab resources, Ishii lacked something integral to his plot. Military whispers soon solved his dilemma. Japan planned to invade the region of Manchuria, which at the time was aligned with China. As the news whirled through his head, Ishii could only grin at its implication. Far sooner than he could have anticipated, his vision would actualize. Testing bioweapons on human subjects. Up next, Ishii's experiments turn to torture. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. By January 1931, 38-year-old Dr. Shiro Ishii had achieved the rank of senior Japanese army surgeon, which he supplemented with regular experiments at the Tokyo Army Medical College. He discovered more about viruses like anthrax and typhoid, but he wouldn't be satisfied until he was able to test his bacteria on human subjects. So when radical officers of the Guantung army devised a plot to invade Manchuria for its resources and land, the effort aligned well with Ishii's desire for prisoners to experiment on. On the night of September 18, 1931, several members of the Guantung army blew up a section of Japan's railway in Manchuria. No one died and the explosion didn't even destroy the track. But the event was staged to appear as an unprovoked attack on Japan by Chinese troops. Within hours, the Guantung army mobilized, and Japan took control of Manchuria. Though over 90% of the land's inhabitants were Chinese, Japan instated a puppet ruler, Henry Puyi, and renamed the state Manchu Guo, China alerted the League of Nations, desperate for help, but the international group faced delays. In the meantime, Japan kept control of Manchuria, and Shiro Ishii moved in. 
In early 1932, the Guangdong Army authorized Ishii's request for the construction of an experimental facility. To carry out his project, they extended him 200,000 yen, a significant amount at the time. It seemed that Japan's extreme military leaders were banking on Shiro Ishii's boasted defense capabilities, specifically to take down their northern opponent, Russia. So Ishii headed to what was now called Manchukuo and started work on his first biological warfare facility, officially called the Epidemic Prevention Unit. Right off the bat, however, he faced a major conflict with the city of Harbin, where construction was underway. Termed Paris of the East, the city of Harbin was home to prestigious universities and bustling cafes. Its metropolitan crowding made Ishii skeptical that his human experiments could be conducted secretly. Nevertheless, Ishii's team of builders and physicians took over an abandoned sake distillery and various adjacent shops. Still, it wasn't private enough for the evil he planned. Within months, Ishii requested to open another biological warfare compound in the remote village of Bei Yin He. By late summer 1932, his request was granted. To clear the small town, Japan's military infiltrated, pillaged, and burned over 300 homes and shops within an area of 500 square meters. The displaced Bei Yin He inhabitants were then given three days to leave, their livelihoods robbed from them in the blink of an eye. But worse than theirs were the fates of captured dissidents who became the first victims of Shiro Ishii's biological warfare project. Incensed Chinese civilians were converted into forced laborers. Gathered from outside villages, they were directed to construct the inner medical experiment prison part of the camp. Afterwards, to ensure secrecy, they were executed. Still, more dissident Chinese civilians were captured and brought to the building site at Bei Yin He to build 100 new structures, including barracks, offices, and medical facilities. Of the many labs that were constructed, one in particular held importance for Ishii. The frigid space would be devoted to the research of anthrax, known for its capacity to withstand cold conditions. As Ishii had nurtured a growing desire to invade the cold north and conquer his communist Russian rivals, anthrax became a promising germ. Because anthrax can withstand extremely cold conditions, Ishii likely designed a lab that was meant to replicate Arctic temperatures. Today, studying pathogens with temperature control is much more efficient and much easier, and this is thanks to modern scientific techniques and climate simulation. Given that temperature is one of the most important physical factors impacting the biology of parasite-host interactions, it's no wonder Dr. Ishii recognized the importance of studying this variable. His anthrax laboratory must have been far more expensive to maintain than his other facilities, given the era and refrigeration costs. His efforts here indicate his optimism for the bacteria's potential as a biological weapon. 
Following less than a year of construction, in late 1932, much of the facility was complete. The space in his prisons allowed for the facility to house anywhere from 500 to 600 subjects at once, locked in cells like guinea pigs. Notably, Ishii had a high interest in male subjects who were under 40. They would provide the best controls for his experiments. So while a variety of people were shipped to Beiyin-he, Shiro Ishii's earliest victims were strong-bodied political prisoners and guerrillas who'd been involved in anti-Japanese resistance groups. Mixed among them were common criminals with bad luck. The townspeople of Beiyin-he shuddered seeing the trains full of prisoners on their way to the facility. Cries and screams often echoed from inside the train cars, but an air of secrecy was heavily enforced. Once, a small child reportedly walked up to Beiyin-he's outer fence to see what was beyond it. A guard promptly shot him. It's no surprise that Ishii's staff protected their covert operations so strictly. What went on behind the walls at Beiyin-he was something no one had ever dared try at any other point in history. Once offloaded from the train, prisoners ate well-balanced meals at regular intervals and were permitted regular exercise time in a special room. This ensured that all data collected would accurately show the impacts of injected bacteria and viruses rather than existing diseases. Had the subjects been struggling with comorbidities, the effectiveness of any potential bioweapon would remain unclear. Oddly, while trying to ensure that their subjects were in an optimal state of health, medical technicians at Beiyin-he regularly drew great quantities of blood. According to Daniel Barenblatt, doctors drew a minimum of 500 cubic centimeters of blood, sampled every two or three days. Blood sampling can be very helpful in determining the state of someone's overall health and checking for certain diseases. However, there are limits to how much blood should be drawn from a patient within a given time frame. Normally, during physical exams, less than 50 cubic centimeters, or cc's of blood, is collected, and it's recommended that patients wait about three weeks between draws to allow for some replenishment. Drawing 500 cc's of blood every two to three days would have been very dangerous for Ishii's patients and easily could have killed them. A 150 to 180 pound adult has about 5,000 cc's of blood in their body, which means that after two weeks with Dr. Ishii's team, someone this size would have lost about half their total blood volume. It also takes 90 days for red blood cells to fully regenerate, so over time, these prisoners would have almost been drained entirely. These risks involved here are severe and, among other things, include severe dehydration, nutrient loss, and dangerous electrolyte imbalances. These conditions could also lead to lethal cardiovascular and neurologic complications. Even though Ishii's doctors were feeding their subjects well, the extreme blood loss would have surely created major health issues. More maddening than Ishii's enforced practices meant for monitoring health were those intended to deplete it. Some subjects were almost entirely drained of blood, 
so scientists could learn at what point low circulation and blood cell deprivation would kill a person. Another experiment, designed to examine bubonic plague, withdrew bacteria from fleas on captured mice. The extracted plague was then injected into prisoners. In the days and weeks that followed, esteemed scientists and physicians monitored and notated the deterioration of each prisoner's physiological state. The bubonic plague is a very fast-acting illness. After becoming infected, people usually develop a sudden fever and can experience headache, chills, muscle aches, confusion, and fatigue. These symptoms are usually followed or accompanied by a swollen lymph node or nodes in the groin, armpit, or neck area. These swollen, infected golf ball-sized nodes, referred to as buboes, usually appear within the first week after contracting the disease. They form because bacteria multiply inside lymph nodes and they invade those closest to where the pathogen initially entered the body. If left untreated, bacteria can eventually spread from the lymph nodes into the bloodstream, which can cause septicemia or deadly blood poisoning caused by toxins. Though incredibly cruel, Dr. Ishii surely conducted this experiment because it provided useful insight into one of the deadliest diseases in human history. Ishii was ambitious. He wouldn't stop at bloodletting or bubonic plague. His interests in bacteriology and biowarfare spanned a broad scope of threatening human illnesses. In another experiment, Ishii's team was said to have placed cholera, typhoid, or dysentery bacterias into milk and forced prisoners to drink it. Other diseases were reportedly injected into sweet treats and dumplings. Of course, with the average life expectancy of prisoners landing at a mere 30 days, it's likely the subjects realized the food they were given contained disease. There was little they could do to protest. Any dissent led to an earlier death. A sense of panic likely terrorized their every moment. Other experiments involved the controlled bombing of entire units to see if prisoners could withstand different explosive impacts. Afterwards, the doctors tracked the slow death of those who survived. By fall of 1932, Ishii had a high-functioning facility that sought out more subjects daily. The budding biowarfare empire, however, was challenged in October 1932 when the League of Nations finally delivered their assessment of the Manchurian takeover. They concluded that Japan had staged the railway attack. There was no Chinese aggression. They recommended that Manchuria be returned to the Chinese. Japan refused criticizing the Western nations for their hypocrisy as they had occupied China on multiple occasions, Japan left the League of Nations in March 1933. They also effectively rejected the Geneva Convention Treaty banning biowarfare. It was a significant moment in history. Japan had essentially voiced their intent to continue their conquest of China, protecting Ishii's burgeoning bioweapons in the process. Ishii promised significant returns for their belief in him and soon delivered. 
Throughout 1933, he convinced military leaders of new objectives and possibilities by filming his inhumane studies. The recorded accounts of human suffering would be termed the Bei Yin He Prisoner Experiment Films. Meanwhile, in Germany, the Third Reich was on the rise. As global tensions shifted, the world held its breath, unable to fully anticipate the atrocities of soon-to-be concentration camps like Auschwitz. No one outside the walls of Beijing He realized that such vile acts of evil were metastasizing like the very plagues Ishii once aimed to remedy. Hitler had yet to realize his ambitions in regards to eugenics and racial hygiene. But by that point, the East was already home to its own version of a death camp. Next time on Medical Murders, we'll return to Bayin He to follow the dark stories of its prisoners and track Shiro Ishii's expansion into greater atrocities. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Shiro Ishii, among the many sources we used, we found A Plague Upon Humanity by Daniel Barenblatt extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murder stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hi, listeners, it's Carter. Here's a quick reminder to check out the Solved Murders four-part special Party Fowls. Every Wednesday in August, take a closer look at four celebrations that ended in horrific fashion. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Solved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.